a 21-year-old gay college student in Wyoming, was brutally beaten by two men and died from his injuries. His story became synonymous with anti-gay hate crimes. Stephen Jimenez went to Laramie to research the story of Matthew Shepard's murder in 2000 after the two men convicted of killing him had gone to prison and after the national media had moved on. His aim was to write a screenplay on what he believed to be an open and shut case of bigoted violence. As a gay man himself, he felt added moral imperative to tell Matthew Shepard's story. What Jimenez eventually found out in Wyoming was a tangled web of secrets, plunging him into the underworld of drug trafficking. Over 13 years, Jimenez traveled to 20 states and Washington, D.C., interviewing more than 100 sources. The resulting work, The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard, has provoked debate not only about the facts of this case, but a discussion about how truth and reality are shaped by the media. Stephen Jimenez will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on November 1st, 7 to 9 p.m., and he joins us uh, for the program today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. How are you doing today? Oh, doing well, doing well. So let's uh, let's begin with um, you would have learned about this uh, murder, as all of us did, uh, through the national media. What were your thoughts at that point? Well, you know, as a gay man, uh, I was, you know, appalled, shocked, horrified. Uh, this was a grotesquely violent crime, and nothing that, uh, you know, that I write about in the book now takes away from that. But that was certainly the reaction that I felt and, you know, most of the people I know felt at the time. Yeah, it was very shocking. And and I think that what was reported was robbery was the motive, but that Matthew Shepard was targeted because he was gay. And and then the brutality of it, t- tied to a fence and, and his skull bashed in. It was, it was just a horrible crime. Yes. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating uh, was to trace the evolution in the different versions of the story uh, as it was told at the time. What you mentioned just now when you said a robbery was the motive, but Matthew was targeted because he was gay, was one piece of it. Uh, Originally, uh, the story that was told in the media was that that Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, when they went into the bar, that they were strangers. They didn't know Matthew Shepard before that evening. And uh, as the story evolved, Aaron McKinney's girlfriend, Kristen Price, a few days after, uh, after the crime, uh, she went on national television, as a matter of fact, on ABC News 2020, and stated that Matthew Shepard had come on to Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson in the bar, and that it had humiliated them in front of their friends, and they decided uh, to take him out and beat him up to teach him a lesson not to come on to straight people. But then that story continued to evolve, and by the time of Aaron McKinney's trial uh, the following year, McKinney was then claiming not that Matthew had come on to them in the bar, but that he had uh, he had reached over and grabbed Aaron McKinney in the truck. Uh, this would have been, you know, several minutes after they left the bar as they were driving through town. So the story itself uh, has had many different versions, um, but certainly at the at the center of it was the fact that Matthew uh, that this was because Matthew was gay. And there, there are many elements which played into symbolism here, right? I mean, his, even his last name, Shepard, he's tied to offense. Reporting was crucifixion style in some reporting. Um, and there were several other elements uh, so that this became, in a, in, a, in a horrible way, you know, perfect as, as a symbol of, of gay hate crimes. That, that's right. And I remember at the time... Uh, 
seeing an illustration, I believe it was in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that literally showed Matthew, you know, hanging on a fence, and the crucifixion imagery really stayed. I, the, the Vanity Fair story uh, that came out, uh, I believe, in 1999, was called The Crucifixion of Matthew Shepard, so that image really stuck. Uh, in fact, you know, as you probably know, uh, when Matthew was found, uh, he was actually sitting down on the, he was, you know, sitting on the ground, leaning back, and his hands were tied behind his back, uh, to a, and, you know, tied to a fence post. But uh, the image of the crucifixion is really what stuck. Hmm. And you're right that, uh, you know, this affected you, as it affected all of us, but I imagine it would have especially affected uh, you as a gay man. And, and you thought back to an earlier time when you had been in Wyoming, and, and the feeling, you know, the thought came to you, this, this could have been me. This could have been me. Yes, I mean, I'm, you know, I uh, am old enough to be uh, to be Matthew's parent, but uh, I think it's something that um, many people in the LGBT community can relate to. Is uh, you know the fear of violence uh, perpetrated uh, because someone is gay or different uh, in whatever way? And I think certainly in the years since Matthew uh, was killed, that there's been you know, a much greater awareness and consciousness of that kind of violence and bullying, et cetera, which I think is all a very positive thing. Now, of course, you would have learned about this, as we all did. It would have affected you. Uh, I think uh, somewhere, either you or somebody else wrote it, it felt like a punch to the gut. But what what took you to Laramie? Well, it's it's interesting, Tom. Uh, As I said, my reaction at the time of the crime was very strong and visceral, but it wasn't until a year later uh, it was during Aaron McKinney's uh, trial. Uh, you know, there was a, a sort of a final agreement that was made at the end of his trial that instead of facing any possibility of the death penalty, there was an agreement that McKinney would serve uh, two life sentences without parole. But um, I was back east then and uh, read uh, the statement that uh, Dennis Shepard made in the courtroom that day, the day McKinney was sentenced. And uh, it was a very uh, eloquent and powerful statement. Um, just you know, the visuals of uh, you know the satellite trucks outside on the street. You know, the you know streets blocked off. Uh, you know, SWAT team on rooftops. Uh, you know, in case any danger erupted. I mean, any violence erupted. And you know, Dennis Shepard's statement. It was almost it was a soul-bearing statement where he just said, you know, uh, he asked sort of questions. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but his exact words are in the book. You know, uh, why wasn't I there? Uh, you know, why wasn't I a better father and friend to Matt? Why wasn't I there when he needed me most? How will I ever get an answer to those questions now? And that just, you know, it, it, that statement very much kind of hit me in the gut. And it was it was then that I decided that I would go to Laramie. Uh, it was it was a a personal reaction, but I I felt that. Really, Dennis Shepard's statement that he was talking to sons and daughters everywhere, uh, I felt that it was certainly a statement that many, many parents could relate to. And uh, it was just a few months after that, in early uh, 2000, in February of 2000, that I went to Laramie, as you pointed out, with the idea of writing a screenplay. Uh, The entire case record had been under seal by the court for a year, uh, from shortly after uh, after the crime happened until after McKinney's sentencing. And also, the you know witnesses in the case, and you know pretty much all the principals who were involved in it had been under a gag order. 
so I saw this uh, as an opportunity to do some research for the screenplay, to really look through the court documents and transcripts and police reports, etc. And that was sort of the beginning. Uh, I would say that it was about eight months uh, into that work. I had actually finished the first draft of the screenplay when I, um, you know, came upon some other information that suggested that there was more to this crime than had been reported at the time. Uh, I will say that uh, that I got to know the prosecutor uh, in the case, Cal Ruka, uh, during that first trip to Laramie in February of 2000, and asked him really if he would educate me about the case, and started a series of interviews with him that uh, initially, you know. The interviews stretched out over months, and then eventually it became years. When did you, you, uh, I think you went in uh, re, you know, with the received conventional wisdom that uh, about what had happened. Uh, when did you first begin to suspect that uh, that's not all to the story? Well, that, that was eight months. Uh, that was eight months into my research. And uh, I actually finished a first draft of the script, which was based a lot on you know, uh, transcripts and documents and some of the interviews with Cal Ruka. But uh, I had gone back to Laramie in October of 2000 uh, and asked him if he would read the screenplay just for fact-checking purposes and to, uh, you know, if, if, if there were any things where I had kind of gone off the rails and really misstated things I wanted to know uh, before sending, sending the script to a producer in Los Angeles with whom I was working. And uh, he was, uh, Cal Ruka was reading the script in his office on a Saturday uh, I was in the law library down the hall in the Albany County Courthouse, and I was going through some folders of articles. Uh, you know, I wanted to be sure, particularly with the local media, that if there were any articles from the Laramie Boomerang or other Wyoming newspapers that I had missed. And uh, I was going through a file, and uh, I came across this anonymous letter that, that was written to the prosecutor, and it was clear from the letter that it had been written uh, it had been written sometime right around Aaron McKinney's trial, because during the trial, uh, Aaron McKinney had tried to use a so-called gay panic defense, alleging that it was uh, the advance from Matthew that triggered memories of abuse McKinney had suffered as a boy, and that's what caused him to explode. Uh, if I may, I, Tom, I don't know if I have the time, but the letter is quite brief. Can I just read yes, the Yes, cer- certainly, certainly. Yeah. The letter said, uh, Dear Mr. Raruka, I was shocked to hear that Aaron McKinney's attorneys claimed gay panic in their defense. Aaron and Russ were quite familiar with gay guys and have frequented gay bars. They became aware of the fact that they had a valuable asset in their pants and that gay guys would give them shelter, food, and money in return for a few minutes' pleasure. And it goes on to say, basically, that um, Aaron had been sexually involved with men. Uh, It goes on to say, Aaron always questioned his own truthfulness as to why he was really doing it. Deep down inside, a small part of him really liked some homosexual action. So, you know, I came upon this letter, and it wasn't so much the salacious details there, but the fact that it named, uh, you know, a sort of notorious limousine driver in Laramie by the name of Doc O'Connor. And I knew at that point that Doc O'Connor had been a friend of Matthew Shepard. And in this letter, there was a connection being made between Doc O'Connor and Aaron McKinney. And so that really got me thinking and uh, ultimately decided to uh, put the screenplay aside and really to look at this, uh, to look at the story as a journalist, which, you know, this was, as I said, late 2000. And uh, here we are, you know, some 13 plus years later. 
We're talking with Stephen Jimenez, uh, his uh, most recent book, a very interesting book. It's called The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. Of course, we all heard about the uh, murder of Matthew Shepard. It's, it's become an iconic case, synonymous with anti-gay hate crimes. Uh, Stephen Jimenez went to write a screenplay. He wanted to tell the, uh, the story of uh, Matthew Shepard. Uh, but what he found in Wyoming, and over 13 years of research, uh, takes this case in a different direction. We'll uh, talk more about this and also about uh, the, the meaning of uh, what's been reported in the media, the, the myth that has, uh, has grown up. If if it indeed is is a myth and the the, the truth behind it and what what that all means, uh, we'll do that uh, following a break. By the way, you're welcome to join this conversation. Love to get your perspective on this. The number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at gmail dot com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North, in Logan. Personalized printing for home, school, or business, including banners, business cards, letterhead, envelopes, brochures, flyers, and calendars. Information at squareoneprinting.com. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune into a wonderful Wood Songs broadcast. We have two great artists, Mandolin Orange and Jesse D. I'm on the road, you're still at home doing your day to day. Both artists for music and conversation on this week's broadcast of the Wood Songs Old Time Radio. Friday night at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Of course, as we all know, in 1998, Matthew Shepard, a 21 year old gay college student in Wyoming, was brutally beaten by two men and died from his injuries on the high plains just outside of Laramie. His story became synonymous with anti gay hate crimes. Stephen Jimenez went to Laramie to research the story of Matthew Shepard's murder in 2000 after the two men convicted of killing him had gone to prison after the national media had moved on and his aim was to write a screenplay on what he believed to be an open and shut case of bigoted violence. Uh, but what uh, he found in Wyoming was a tangled web of secrets plunging him into the underworld of drug trafficking. Uh, it's exhaustive research that has gone into this book, 13 years, uh, more than 100 sources, and the resulting book is The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. It has provoked debate not only about the facts of this case, but discussion about how truth and reality are shaped by media. Stephen Jimenez will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on November 1st from 7 to 9 p.m. It's free and open to the, uh, to the public. I want to uh, talk a bit about the, the media. We'll get into some of the facts of the, of the case. This is a fascinating, the research that you have done. Uh, but as you began to uh, to learn more about the case, uh, Stephen Jimenez, and, and learned that there's more to it than this, did you worry that um, if the accepted wisdom is more myth than fact, isn't it, however, a powerful, useful myth? Uh, well, you know this of iconic course. Uh, this... of course, because the underlying message is an important one, which is that uh, there is uh, violence against gay people and there are uh, hate crimes. But there were also other complexities here that came into play, and once I started looking into those as a journalist, I certainly felt a responsibility uh, to report what I found, and also as a gay man, because I think morally 
uh, truth matters, and it either matters or it doesn't. And I believe that the complexities here in no way, uh, you know, uh, are an attempt... Well, the complexities can't roll back all of the gains that have been made, um, or, you know, nor should they. I mean, the case for gay rights is a very strong one, and uh, I don't I don't see this as something that hurts the cause of gay rights, but I think it's something that uh, helps us uh, understand if we're serious about stopping um, violence in its many forms and also hatred, then it, then it behooves us to understand what happened here. In your introduction, you at uh, first chapter, you quote um, Ellen Goodman. What if you talk yes. about that? It, the the, uh, the mythologizing private uh, Jessica Lynch's heroic exploits in the Iraq War, which we remember. Yes. Well, I found what was interesting about uh, Ellen Goodman's quote is just the idea that uh, when we do that, that something is lost, when we turn a human into a symbol. And I think that this is certainly the Matthew Shepard case is a very, very uh, potent example of that, that we uh, strip, strip this person of their humanity. And it was something I certainly noted in the many magazine articles and uh, newspaper articles and the many different versions of this story is that Matthew, uh, as a person, was conspicuously absent from many of these uh, different versions of the story. Or it was the same set of facts that were repeated over and over, that, you know, he had gone to boarding school in Switzerland, that he spoke a few languages, that he was interested in, you know, human rights, uh, and also that he had been, you know, chronically a victim. But that was, you know, pretty much the extent of it. Uh, There wasn't a lot uh, from, you know, there wasn't a lot coming from friends who had been close to Matthew, uh, you know, certainly, uh, certainly not really about what his life was like, and that was something that I found, you know, fascinating and, and very intriguing. Judy Shepard, I think, uh, has complained. She she became an activist after the murder of her her son, but but she has said the media didn't accurately or doesn't accurately portray my son. That that's exactly right, and in fact, there was a statement that she made uh, a year after Matthew was murdered to, uh, I believe it was uh, a National Association of Journalists, and she uh, she was somewhat critical, saying, you know, uh, everyone reported that, that he was crucified uh, to the fence, and that didn't really happen, but nobody seems to want to write about how it really did happen. I think uh, that Matthew's mother has been very frank uh, in many speaking, you know, speaking appearances, uh, and also in the memoir that she published, uh, The Meaning of Matthew, saying that, you know, uh, that Matthew certainly struggled with issues, was, you know, had his troubles. Uh, she described him often as alone, that he was a loner, that he, you know, had many acquaintances, but didn't really have, uh, you know, didn't really have close friends or good friends. So, uh, yes, I think that that's absolutely true, that, uh, that this is something that the media uh, kind of took and ran with it. Now, when I, when I learned about your book, that one of the thoughts immediately came to mind was the uh... The man who shot Liberty Valance, famous quote, um, where the newspaper man is going to going to print a story which is not entirely accurate, and uh, and he says this is the West. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And there there print is the a legend. Yes, there's a strong impulse well, there. Yes, well, in the uh, ABC News uh, 2020 piece that I produced on the Shepherd murder back in 2004, we actually used that quote uh, early on in the piece. Uh, from uh, from Liberty Valance, because I thought it was it was really apropos uh, that that it really did speak, and 
and I think it's not just in the West. I think it's a tendency that we have in the culture, and I think we can find many examples of that where, uh, you know, there's, there's a first version of the story or a few different versions of the story, and we later learn something very different. Uh, with, I'm, I might add, uh, you know, a range of consequences for, for American society. Uh, certainly, we've had uh, myths around some of uh, the big wars that, that we have fought uh, and, uh, and, and other things where we later learn. I mean, I think of the body of literature on the Vietnam War that came in the decades after the war, which put the war in a, in a whole different context. So you're, I imagine your, I don't know, your central goal, one of your goals is to present the real Matthew Shepard? Yes, uh, I really wanted to uh, create a portrait of Matthew that was more human and uh, and to show, you know, uh, what, what his, some of his strengths were, what his frailties were. Uh, Matthew was a young man who really struggled uh, on, on a variety of levels, and I felt that that was important to understand, uh, to, the, to an understanding of the tragedy and the, the different forces that came into play that night uh, in October of 1998, and, and really tried to do the same thing with Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson and some of the other principals in the story, so that what you're really seeing here is a deeply human story that's unfolding, and uh, you know how this all came to pass, again, uh, in, a, in the belief that the human complexities are important, and that you know when, when we reduce human beings to uh, one-dimensional or two-dimensional figures, uh, it not only strips away their humanity, but it, it, you just simply can't reduce people to a political message. And I think that that is something that happened here. So tell us a bit about um, Matthew Shepard, maybe leading up, and then, then the Matthew Shepard that, uh, you know, circa 1998, Laramie? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, you know, by, by all accounts from the friends of Matthew that I interviewed, uh, he was a very likable, personable fellow. Uh, could be could be very generous. Um, he would, you know, frequently take, you know, friends out for a meal or for coffee or for a drink or even a group of people. Uh, he was idealistic. Uh, he, you know, spoke about Nelson Mandela and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. He was very interested in uh, issues of, of uh, you know, uh, justice and uh, was interested in international human rights. Uh, there was also, uh, in addition to this, you know, I- idealism that he had, uh, he was very interested in theater. Uh, that was something that uh, he loved as, as a boy, uh, even in elementary school, and conti- you know he continued with that interest up until uh, early college. Uh, but there was another side of Matthew too, where he was a he was a struggling young man. Certainly struggled um, with issues uh, around uh, you know alcohol and drugs, and uh, this was something that that kind of uh, dogged him uh, for for a few years, uh, according to numerous friends uh, of Matthew. And uh, you know, underlying it, I think there were there were many issues. Uh, again, I don't want to I don't want to be guilty of the thing that uh, I'm attributing to others here, which is to reduce to reduce Matthew to to a sum of some characteristics. But he is he he was a young man who uh, from from his, his very early life, uh, Matthew had what what was called uh, delayed it has been called delayed puberty, and so he was treated with uh, you know growth hormone. Uh, at a fairly young age, uh, he um, 
you know, I, I, I was horrified to find out had experienced some sexual abuse when he was a boy. Um, you know, not not from someone in his immediate family, but from uh, a couple of adult males. And this was something that I think was extremely painful for him. So, you know, turning to uh, alcohol or drugs uh, to, to self-medicate, given some of those painful experiences, uh, you know, is not, not at all surprising to me. Tell me a bit about the, uh, the, the killers here. Do you, do you uh, go in the background? In fact, you have interviewed both of Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Yes, I mean, I've known both of them now for, oh, probably about 11 years is when I, I guess I started interviewing them. Uh, you know, the early media reports, and, and actually even today, if you read even a contemporary story about the Shepherd murder, they're characterized both as killers, uh, that both of them beat Matthew to death. And these men are a study in contrast. Uh, Aaron McKinney is actually the killer. He's the person that... Uh, you know, uh, took a three fifty seven Magnum and slammed it into Matthew's skull repeatedly. Uh, Russell Henderson, as an accomplice, was certainly uh, responsible and guilty for having driven the truck uh, during what he believed was going to be a robbery. But Russell Henderson did not have any history with Matthew Shepard. Uh, I, I found no evidence that, that Henderson had ever met Matthew before. But I did discover that McKinney, uh, had a history with Matthew Shepard, uh, that they were not strangers, and that they had known each other uh, for months prior to this crime. So, uh, you know, they're, they're two very, very different individuals. Um, Aaron McKinney was addicted to methamphetamine. He had been uh, a dealer and, uh, and an addict for about three years prior to the crime. Uh, Henderson had uh, used methamphetamine, but he was not involved in selling it. Uh, Aaron McKinney was building up a record of criminal offenses going back to actually uh, when he was a juvenile. Um, and in fact, less than a year before this crime happened, he, Aaron McKinney, uh, he was uh, involved in a burglary of a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Laramie. And after uh, the, the uh, burglary, uh, he fled to Florida uh, to avoid arrest. Uh, and so Aaron McKinney was on a path where his troubles were becoming greater uh, where the law was concerned. Russell Henderson had no uh, real previous record um, of any kind of felonies or violent crime. The only thing I think Russell Henderson had on his record were a couple of DWIs, which, while serious, were certainly were not an indicator of uh, an involvement in a crime of this magnitude. Uh, you know, they're, they're very different men. Uh, you know, I think one common element uh, Tom, with both of them, is that there were aspects of their child's childhood that were very rough. Uh, Russell Henderson, um, his mom, uh, you know, was uh, alcoholic. She became alcoholic, uh, you know, early in life as a teenager. Russell Henderson was born with fetal alcohol poisoning and almost didn't make it, you know, from the start of his life at birth. Uh, Aaron McKinney, uh, you know, lost his mother when he was 15 years old from a botched surgery. Um, you know, his father, uh, whom I've interviewed a number of times, uh, was a long-haul truck driver, but his parents uh, separated when Aaron was fairly young, and uh, Aaron had, you know, later step, uh, you know, step uh, stepfather. Uh, but there were, you know, stories of, um, you know, Aaron being a problem when he was a kid, and you know, that his mother just didn't really know how to deal with him sometimes and would lock him in the basement when she went out. 
and and other things like that. Uh, so you know you can see certainly uh, in their in their childhoods that um, there were some things that you know could easily be called dysfunctional and certainly laid the groundwork for some of the later behavior. If you just joined us, we're talking with Stephen Jimenez. His latest book is The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. As we all uh, likely remember this, uh, just a shocking case. 1998, Matthew Shepard, 21-year-old gay college student, Wyoming, brutally beaten by two men, died from his injuries. Uh, this story became synonymous with anti-gay hate crimes. Stephen Jimenez went to Laramie to research this story in 2000 and has been researching it ever since. Uh, the book is now out, the result of exhaustive uh, research. And what he's saying is that this is a more complicated story than we thought. We've been talking about the effects of the media and uh, when icons like this are uh, found out to be more uh, complicated. And we'll continue talking about this, of course. The, um, the number to reach us is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us at up, uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to take another brief break. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, conclusions that Mr. Jimenez uh, drew from his research and what they mean. Following the break. Did you know that if a child really wants to read something you know is beyond his or her ability, solve it by reading it aloud together. You can take turns reading and define unfamiliar words as you go. That way the child will avoid frustration and enjoy the added bonus of your company. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Stokes Nature Center's 16th annual fall fundraiser, Van Gogh Going Gone, with seated banquet, beverages, silent, and live auctions. Saturday, November 2nd at 6 p.m. at the Copper Mill in Logan. Information at loganature.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Stephen Jimenez, author of The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. Stephen Jimenez will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on November 1st from 7 to 9 p.m. That's uh, open to the public. And uh, the book, of course, is about the Matthew Shepard case. He was murdered in uh, uh, 1998, Laramie, Wyoming. The story became synonymous with anti-gay hate crime. Stephen Jimenez, the result of 13 years of research, says the story is more complicated than that. And uh, I guess my next question, Stephen Jimenez, is how much more complicated than that? Did, did in, in the end, uh, you're, you're saying this had to do with, with drugs, with meth, with, with drug trafficking, perhaps? Did it have anything yeah. to do with the, with the fact that uh, this young man was gay? Well, if it had anything to do with the crime, it was certainly, uh, you know, at least a secondary factor. If It was simply not what was driving McKinney on this evening. First of all, uh, he and Matthew had been friends. While there had been tension between them, the tension between them uh, was competitive. It was about drugs. And um, and McKinney had been involved uh, sexually, not only with Matthew, but other males. So this is not something that, uh, you know, was due to gay panic. But if I, if I could, Tom, let me just give a little background on methamphetamine. In 1998, when Matthew was murdered, uh, the meth story was not one that, w- that the national media was looking at at all. In fact, it wouldn't be until 
you know, 2004, 2005, and, and after, that, uh, that it really became a national story. But the meth epidemic that moved through uh, a number of Midwestern states and Western states and, and eventually really was cropping up all over the country, that, that epidemic had already begun. Uh, it was, had already started in, you know, in Iowa, in Missouri, uh, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. It was already becoming a very serious problem. And simultaneously, the drug was uh, also uh, moving through uh, certain urban gay enclaves. Uh, initially, it was San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, but also Denver, where Matthew lived uh, in 1997 and until the summer of 1998 when he moved to Laramie. So the, the, the meth part of this story was not one that was explored at the time. Uh, the only journalist who even mentioned meth in a serious way was uh, Joanne Vipajewski, who, who wrote a piece, uh, published a piece in Harper's in 1999. And she was unfortunately... Uh, you know, uh, her her efforts were limited by the uh, by the gag order that was in place and the witnesses who uh, you know the witnesses who couldn't talk and also the records that were sealed. So this is a part of the story that was simply not really examined. Uh, you know, and as I began to go through police reports, I did find a reference and mention to methamphetamine. Uh, one of Matthew's uh, very close friends at the time, Alex Trout. Uh, had told police officers that Matthew had become involved uh, with meth when he was uh, meth and cocaine when he was living in Denver, and it was one of those pieces of the story naturally that journalists really never saw while the case was going on. Uh, in fact, uh, on the night of the crime, there was a uh, there was a, a delivery of of six ounces of methamphetamine that uh, was uh, slated to arrive in Laramie that night. And uh, the people that were responsible for bringing it to town were actually friends and associates of Matthew that he, you know, he had known since uh, the time when he was living in Denver. Uh, uh, Aaron McKinney uh, had heard about these six ounces of meth, and uh, Aaron McKinney had been up for a week on meth. Um, he owed a couple of his suppliers money. Uh, he hadn't paid his rent yet for October, had a, a live-in girlfriend and a four-month-old baby, at, a son at home. So, uh, you know, the, he was very, very stressed out. And when he learned about the six ounces of meth, which had a street value of uh, somewhere between ten dollars and $12,000, he saw this as a solution to his problems. Hmm. Uh, now, you're... You're aware, I'm sure, that there's there's some pushback. There are some people, uh, key people, who don't, do not agree with your conclusions. One of the lead investigators here, Dave O'Malley, doesn't agree with your conclusions, and he he points to the lack of proof that Aaron McKinney had meth in his system. Well, it's interesting because uh, Dave, uh, I know Dave. I've interviewed him in the past. Uh, he appeared in the 2020 piece, and uh, I did an interview on NPR a few weeks ago, and Dave O'Malley was asked to produce a toxicology report and as far as i know the toxicology report hasn't been uh... hasn't been offered up what i would tell you is that uh... i've gone through every document that was publicly available when i was doing my work uh... i've interviewed the prosecutor in the case extensively and i have never seen a toxicology report indicating that the prosecutor has certainly never mentioned it in fact on the contrary the prosecutor has gone on the record saying 
and and I'm paraphrasing here, but his words are in the book, saying that um, had Aaron McKinney not become involved with methamphetamine, that Matthew Shepard would be alive today. It was a horrible, horrible murder driven by drugs. And Cal Ruka is not alone in this. Uh, ben Fritzen, who is one of also, he was one of the lead homicide detectives. He actually took the recorded confession from McKinney, had interviewed, had, had uh, excuse me, investigated McKinney previously uh, for drug-related offenses, and knew McKinney's whole group of uh, drug cohorts in Laramie. Uh, you know, because he had a number of sources on the street. Uh, he also doesn't agree with uh, with O'Malley's conclusions. And what I would say is if there's any evidence uh, that's contrary to what I've stated in the book, then I encourage Dave O'Malley to produce it. Hmm. So if we if we accept your conclusions, um, th- this this case, this murder has a different meaning. What what does it mean? Well, what I think it means is uh, that there were many factors that came into play not only with the crime itself, but with how the crime was perceived. And I think this is an instance where uh, the media, there was a very graphic story here, and the media went with it very quickly. On the other hand, uh, considering what I mentioned about, um, you know, a gag order and sealed records, it was very difficult for people to actually look at what we consider to be evidence. Uh, I think, the pol- uh, you know, politics certainly played a role. I think uh, before Matthew died, there were vigils and protests around the country. Uh, then President Bill Clinton uh, made statements, you know, uh, urging passage of a hate of a hate crime bill that was then stalled in Congress, uh, which probably uh, was, you know, the James Byrd killing, uh, dragging death in Jasper, Texas, had happened just four months before the, the attack on Matthew Shepard. So the the notion that this was an, an open and shut case of anti-gay hate, there were many factors that helped create that idea. But I also feel that there's a lot to be learned from uh, from from the tragedy that happened here, uh, with you know with the, with the hatred and violence that exists, as I said earlier, in so many forms in the culture. If we're serious about uh, putting a stop to those things or dealing with them effectively, then we really need to understand, well, what were the circumstances? What was really going on behind this tragedy? Do you think there should be a category of hate crime? I mean, the, the facts in this case don't don't perhaps match up, but in general. Well, what I would say about that is this. Does hatred exist? Of course it does. And are, uh, you know, are uh, gay people uh, victims of, of hate? Sure, they are. Uh, what I would say is that hate crime is a separate issue. That's now, you know, uh, a legal, there's a legal definition of what a hate crime is. And uh, I don't know all the specifics of the law, and I don't feel, you know, certainly I'm not an expert on hate crime law. But um, what I would say is that uh, it's a, you know, it's a very difficult question because hate crime, as I understand it, is specifically about targeting someone for a specific characteristic like their sexual orientation. And what I discovered here is that there were other motives, not only that came into play, but other motives that were driving the events that night far more than anti-gay hatred. Now, the original story, the importance of that is uh, can be illustrated, I think, by, the, by some of the backlash that you're getting from, including, I think, from the Matthew Shepard Foundation. They don't. Yes, they're not accepting yes. your your version of the story. They're they're saying that this is you know this is this is wrong. Yes. 
Well, what they said is, uh, and this was just a, a couple of days after the book came out, it was a very general statement. Again, uh, you know, it's easy uh, to, to say that the book is uh, not reliable, but no one has really said, oh, here on page 75, he misstates this, and here's the contrary information that's, that you know, says that this is not true. Um, do we have a moment here, Tom? Uh, What's that? We have a, a few more moments here? Oh, yes, we do, yes. Oh, good. No, uh, there's a fellow that I interviewed. Uh, actually, he's now the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation. His name is Jason Marsden. Jason Marsden was a journalist back in 1998 when the crime happened and also a friend of Matthew. He was one of the first people that heard about the crime and perhaps what the motives behind it were. Uh, I interviewed Jason uh, in, in 2004 when I was producing the piece for ABC News, and the interview was videotaped. And in the book, I quote, and I'll just use a, you know, a short quote here for your listeners, uh, Jason Marsden said, the quick and easy description of Matt Shepard gay-bashed is about as far from the actual nuanced truth of what happened as it can get. It's offensive to see the truth boil down so much that it's no longer the truth. The horrible irony was that his death had an enormous amount to offer us in lessons, and that many of those were missed opportunities because of the shorthand of the media. Uh, and I have to say that uh, I agree very much with what Jason Marsden said at the time. I went on to talk with him about methamphetamine, and he acknowledged that it was a very big problem in Wyoming in 1998, that it was seldom discussed, and he also went on to say, quote, that this was perhaps the most spectacular methamphetamine-related crime that had ever happened in Wyoming. So, uh, you know, uh, there was a statement released, as you pointed out, saying that uh, I'm relying, uh, or my book is relying on, you know, uncorroborated information. But uh, I will say that everything that is in the book, you know, has been... Uh, backed up by multiple sources. There's a list at the end of the book of, uh, I believe it's 112 named individuals that I spoke with uh, in the course of my research. So again, if someone has contrary information, I invite them to come forward. We all benefit from the truth. So I guess what, what he's saying there, Mr. Marston, is, as you quoted, is, if I interpret it correctly, is that in a, in a publicized case like this, important that the media and that we all get the, get the lessons right. I agree completely. Uh, there's another factor here, and you you talk about. I think it's the chapter two or three in your book. Um, that there, I don't know if it's the right word, but well publicized cases like this, um, perhaps devalue if that's the right word, the meaning of, of of other. There are many less publicized cases, and you talk about a murder that happened in the Laramie area just a year before. Yes, uh, that involved a 15 year old girl named Daphne Sulk whose body was found in the wilderness outside Laramie, and uh, it was a horrible, horrible crime. And it was one that, um, you know, was uh, certainly uh, equal uh, in its uh, violent components to the, the murder of Matthew Shepard, but of course was one that we never heard about. But I will mention another example that I think that's in the book and I think is an important one. Russell Henderson's mother, uh, Cindy Dixon, uh, in January of uh, 1999, while Russell Henderson was awaiting trial in the Shepard case, Cindy Dixon was picked up uh, by a man in Laramie, and she was driven, uh, oh, about eight and a half miles uh, outside Laramie to a really remote place called Rogers Canyon. 
uh, she was uh, raped in the vehicle and, uh, you know, pushed out of the car. And this was on a night when there was, uh, you know, with a wind chill factor probably down, uh, you know, negative 20 degrees. And uh, Cindy Dixon froze to death by the side of the road. Uh, the man who raped her uh, fled. He was a convicted felon. He was on parole from another state. And, um, you know, he was eventually caught. He was charged with murder. Uh, the case, that particular case, received, uh, you know, a few lines of mention uh, in the local paper. Uh, the, the charges were reduced. Uh, he agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter. He did acknowledge that he had raped her, and the evidence showed that. Uh, in any case, uh, he was given a four- to nine-year prison sentence, and he was back on the street in, in four years. Mm. So that, to me, is also an example of, you know, uh, <laughs> of uh, the, what the media's impact can be on, on a big case like this one. Uh, Russell Henderson received two life sentences with no possibility of parole, and there's uh, no strong evidence at all that Russell Henderson ever struck Matthew uh, and ever intended to inflict any violence on Matthew. So what, uh, having thought about this for 13 years, uh, what, where do you think the media gets it wrong? What, what could they do better? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's an impulse to go after the big tabloid story. And uh, in this case, uh, I think you had a lot of journalists coming from the Northeast, and there's a, there's a picture of what Wyoming is, what the landscape is. Uh, for example, the fence where Matthew was found, it was portrayed as this, you know, kind of bleak, remote, you know, you know, ranch fence on the prairie. And in fact, it was actually a decorative fence that was on the landscape in connection with a new suburban development on the outskirts of Laramie, but it was portrayed very different, differently. And I think that there was a tendency... For, the, for reporters to report what other people were saying. And uh, I think there was a lot of stereotyping of Laramie, of this as, you know, uh, the hate crime capital of America, that people are intolerant there. And I have to say that that was not my experience. Uh, as I got to know people in Laramie, I actually found them uh, to be uh, quite open. It's, you know, obviously it's a, it's a more rural state with, I guess, what, 450,000 people in the entire state. Uh, it, it, but it is in many ways a live-and-let-live state. Uh, you know, it was one of, the fir- you know, one of the very first states to give uh, rights to women. But there was a, there was a portrayal of Wyoming as this uh, kind of redneck cowboy place. And so I think when you start to rely on those uh, stereotypical images, which I think the media did, that's not a good place to begin. Just have a couple of minutes left to give the final word on this. What what do you take away? What 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 lingers with you the most after having spent thirteen years in this case? Well, the tragedy of what uh, what can happen uh, to the young, and uh, you know, there were many other people uh, that I met in Laramie, uh, young people, and also in other places who have really been affected by crystal meth. And even out uh, during my book tour now, uh, people come up to me after, you know, readings, and this is still a problem. It's not as serious a problem as, as it was back in 1998. But um, really, what opportunities are there for the young? What, uh, you know, what are we doing to, uh, to open up opportunities so that uh, young people are not turning 
to, to methamphetamine and other drugs, one, to anesthetize themselves, or two, as a way to make a living and keep themselves going. So I think this is really uh, much in the way Columbine was in a different way. It's really about a tragedy uh, with the young. We'll leave it there. Uh, the book is The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. The author is Stephen Jimenez, and he'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on November 1st from 7 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much, Mr. Jimenez. A, gr- a great pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And I uh, hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow for Access Utah. For today, for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Several months ago, a disturbing YouTube clip made its way onto the internet and, as is always the case, went viral. The incident recorded was a school bus fight, an almost deadly beating of a young boy by three older ones. The bus driver, a 64-year-old man, appeared unwilling, even scared, to step in to stop the fight, although he can be heard above the yelling and screaming, demanding the aggressors stop hitting the boy and sit down. Many folks at the time accused the bus driver of dereliction of duty for not acting more aggressively by pulling the boys off their victim. In fact, his case was sent to the Florida State Attorney's Office, which finally decided not to file child neglect charges against him. According to the school bus driver's code, if trouble erupts, a bus driver need only call dispatch to put in a 911 call, and he did that. Now, flashback about 40 years. My father, having recently retired after 30 years as an officer in the U.S. Air Force, was moping around the house, hating that he hadn't anything real to do. Sympathetic to his situation, my mother suggested he look for a part-time job so he wouldn't feel so out of sorts, and he agreed that was a great idea. After looking around, he found a job as a school bus driver for the local Phoenix School District. The hours were good, working mornings and afternoons, with most of the day free for swimming, puttering, reading, and relaxing. My father approached the job with a certain military attitude. The children were to behave on the bus. There was to be no bullying or fighting and no yelling. He expected, nay, demanded, that all his passengers be courteous and well-behaved, or else. All went smoothly for the first semester, but the following semester, as summer approached, a few boys grew restive and decided to test the old man, to see what he'd do if they pulled something. They started out with small things, not letting friends sit together, demanding money to be let alone, leaving the bus to follow other kids and harass them on their way home. My father took all this in and then called a powwow with the troublemakers. He ordered them to stop their shenanigans or he'd punish them. And just how was he going to do that, they sneered. After all, he was just a lowly bus driver. Poor dears, they were unaware of his military grit, his World War II experience, his dedication to integrity and honor. In short, they were unaware that they were messing with my dad. Needless to say, once the cat was out of the bag, they upped the ante. The teasing, harassing, and bad behavior not only continued, it grew worse. My father, a patient man, waited for his chance. One really, really hot Phoenix afternoon on a lonely stretch of road between subdivisions, my dad abruptly stopped the school bus and demanded the miscreants get off. Though surprised, they refused. He stood up and approached them and told them again to get off now or he'd throw them off. 
Realizing he was serious and could easily do it, they quickly skedaddled. He left them in a cloud of bus exhaust, stranded on the side of a desert road in 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Was he fired? Was he even chastised? Not at all. In fact, he was sure the boys never even told anyone such was their embarrassment. But the word got around the schoolyards because the other bus riders talked. And my dad, for the remainder of his bus driving days, never again had a discipline problem. Oh, the times and how they have changed. This is Gina Wickwar.